from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Welcome to From the Catbird Seat, a poetry podcast from the Poetry and Literature Center at the Library of Congress. I'm Ann Holmes, the Center's Digital Content Manager. If this is your first time tuning into the podcast, here's a little background. Each week, we pull from our nearly 80 years of archived recordings to listen to the celebrated poets reading and discussing their work here at the library. For our first season, we're exploring some of the Poetry and Literature Center's signature events from the last five years or so, and we'll also host some special guests who can take us behind the scenes a bit. All of the recordings you'll hear this season are available as video webcasts on the library's website. With that, let's get started. In April of 2013, an intimate crowd gathered at the Hill Center at the Old Naval Hospital here in Washington, D.C. for the inaugural installment of the Hill Center Poetry Series. D.C. native and poet Elizabeth Alexander joined Ron Charles of the Washington Post Book World for an hour-long conversation that navigated the relationship between the poet's work and biography. Five years and nearly 20 poets later, this little experiment of a poetry series is now a cornerstone of our event season at the Poetry and Literature Center. What began as the Hill Center Poetry Series soon became the life of a poet a name better fitting these long-form, expansive conversations that Ron Charles takes on. Ron comes to each interview with armfuls of notes and questions and quotes, not to mention a selection of poems for the featured poet to read, oftentimes poems that the poet hasn't read or recalled in decades. So on today's episode, we go behind the scenes with Ron Charles and Rob Casper, the head of the Poetry and Literature Center, to find out how these interviews take shape. Ron will tell us a little bit about his experience of reading a poet's entire body of work in one sitting, and how much he prepares for each interview. Spoiler alert, it's a lot. And the emotional twists and turns that make each interview tick. We'll also revisit some particularly charged moments from the series. Okay, let's listen. Could you paint us a picture of what happens in that room? For the, those of the people who are listening to this podcast who uh, haven't had the experience or can't have the experience of going to a Life of a Poet event. It's a little bit like church. You know, you can listen to it on the radio, you can watch it on TV, but it's nothing like being there in the room. It starts a few minutes before we go into the room. We meet in, I guess, what you'd call a green room, somebody's office, and we talk for no more than about 20 minutes, but I found that's essential to establish some sort of rapport with the poet, to get a sense of how comfortable they are, to maybe flesh out what they're uncomfortable talking about, and just to relax them about the whole process. Then we go into the room. Uh, there are about 100 chairs. Lately, they've been full. Uh, we walk to the center, we walk up onto a little platform, we put on our microphones. I usually talk to a few people in the audience because now you know I know them. They've come right. back week after week. I wave to my wife, an old colleague from Book World who always comes. And then we just begin talking about the poet's work. Usually the poets are a little nervous at first. I mean, I've done it so many times now. I, I can honestly say I'm not nervous. The poets are a little guarded sometimes, uh, but pretty soon they get into it. And the, 
since we're sitting so close to our audience, you know, they're right there all around us, uh, reacting to us, uh, it feels very intimate, very involved. Uh, it's a really intense literary experience, like none other that I've had. Mm-hmm. Well, and talk about the format and how you develop the format. The format as it is now, uh, I get a hold of every book the poet has published, every collection the poet has published. Some of them are you know, prolific nonfiction writers, too. I can't do all of that. Uh, and in the days leading up to the interview, I read in one or two sessions every poem they've written, which is a weird experience, and an experience the poets never had either. Right. I mean, few poets sit down and read all their work in two days, and most editors don't do that either. Uh, so I read all the poems pretty much you know, from beginning to end uh, and get a sense of their, the whole arc of their poetic career and then start to notice or create or imagine uh, themes that they have returned to or developed or sometimes even moved away from. And I start to take notes and I identify usually four or five of these issues and I start to build an hour's interview around those themes. And then when we go in for the... Uh, oh, and I also, of course, identify about 20 poems throughout their career, and I mark them and spread those throughout the interview. And so when I sit down and begin talking to them, I'll raise some issue, usually very broadly, because I want the poet to speak about whatever she'd like to talk about. And she'll talk, and then I'll say, and would you read us a poem about that? And I hand her the book, and she'll say, oh, oh, I, I haven't read this poem in years. Right. And then she'll read it. Uh, and it's really delightful, because the poets are discovering their old work some of them, you know, as I said, for the first time in a long, long time. We've had some funny reactions. Uh, poets have noticed errors in the poems. Right. Many po- poets notice things they want changed or that they would change now that they're more mature poets. Other poets are delighted by their past work. Some, you can tell, are a little embarrassed about uh, what they now consider sort of juvenile work. So it's, it ranges. And then uh, we work you know, through the poems, not chronologically, but thematically. Uh, so sometimes we might end on a very old poem, or we might end on a very new poem. It doesn't have anything to do with history so much as uh, the progression of these issues in their work. To get more familiar with the format and atmosphere that Ron is describing, let's listen to a segment from The Life of a Poet with Mary Rufel, which took place at the Hill Center in May 2015. In one of your poems, you say one pair of eyes is simply not enough. And I, listening and looking, are, are the central activities of your poem. Do you agree with that? I totally agree with that. Paying, yeah, paying attention to... Yes, yeah. they're all about what I get the sense that you think poetry is an act of extreme and inspired attention. Yes, I do. I do. You write in one of your poems, they noticed, you see, that I was a noticing kind of person. In another poem you say, poetry is a tourist. It wears cameras around its neck and takes nice pictures <laughs> of deadly things. <laughs> True. In a poem called... The Lake Gulls in April includes these lines. Every time you are amazed, you are a poet, amazed at exactly the right thing. That's the key, looking. I think all poets are noticers and pay attention, but but we pay attention to different things, hence the wide variety of of poetic concerns and subjects and and styles. Some people pay attention to... um, to the evolution of their past. And some people pay attention to language. 
always a great thing to pay attention to. And some people pay attention to what they, they see, like a, a flower, to nature, or uh, if they live, or urban things in urban. You know, and you pay attention to different things. Um, uh, Your poems make us pay att more attention, I think. They sort of train us to pay attention. Well, that's the greatest compliment that anyone could give another person. Uh, to pay more attention to the world around you. And sometimes it's very ordinary things. In one of your poems, oh. this line struck me. The elaborate stillness of a hard-boiled egg wrapped in wax paper at the bottom of a lunch pail. Hard-boiled eggs? Have you ever really looked at a hard-boiled egg? <laughs> and they have that sheen. The elaborate stillness. And then Bob Dylan has that great line, speaking of poetry, in which it's a song he's totally ripping off the Scottish poet Robbie Burns, it's My Heart's in the Highland, and he walks into a restaurant and he compares the waitress's long legs to a shiny hard-boiled egg. <laughs> I don't know, that just popped into my mind. You said hard-boiled egg, and I said yeah. they're amazing, and then I thought of that line. That's good. I mean, hard-boiled eggs, they're everywhere. <laughs> they're everywhere. Once you start thinking about them, you see them everywhere. That, that poem ends, by the way, so you see it all. Everything so terribly clear. I have sticky notes here. Here's a, a poem about looking and seeing. I mean, all your poems are, but that one struck me in particular. Oh, it's early. This is my first book. Wow. Okay. I haven't read this in 40 years. <laughs> uh, street. One, it begins in the window and is broken by the elm with a root for drinking. Everything is alive in a glass. The woman in a clear plastic coat, cellophane over the bread in her bag. Through a windshield, I can see her face half cut by a wiper. There, a man stands in a gutter of water, shifts in the drunkenness of leaves. Like his feet, he has taken a single unnecessary step. From here on out, things will be different. His heart, an engine, a small yellow sun that appears to be stopping traffic. Two, it is painful to look at the snowman, his eye socket shoved with coal. He is melting like white bread in the rain. Only the luster of his eyes will be left hard in the tall grass. Odd that the deadly event seemed to be sagging with birth, unable to sleep or let go. Or perhaps it is everything happening at once, a black coat taking with it the stock-still man inside. It is a dangerous thing to be walking without looking up. And a chair is a terrible thing, sitting next to a third-story window. Beautiful, though that the dead do not have to look both ways. It's a really early poem. It, this, this dates from about 75, 1975. I haven't read it in ages. And I see all sorts of interesting things in it that I did then, like consistently, that I would never do now. But um, that was, yeah, yeah. I was in an apartment, and it was on the third story of a building, and I had a chair right next to the window, and I would sit and just look out the window. Um, 
That's such an incredible moment when she's transported back 40 years to the physical space in and around the poem. It's the kind of moment that helps create and build this intimacy that the poet and Ron Charles and the whole audience share during a Life of a Poet conversation. We'll revisit more event clips shortly, but for now, let's hear more from Ron Charles and Rob Casper. Yeah, and I think one of the ways you manage to get uh, the the uh, audience engaged and push into new territory with uh, the poets featured is to talk about emotional issues, and that often has to do with with um, the poet's background or what they're writing about. There have been some actually pretty fraught moments, uh, in a, powerful moments uh, in the series when you talk through some emotional issues uh, and even spiritual issues with uh, with uh, the poets we featured. Maybe you could talk about a few? Yeah, that's certainly true. I've a couple times not lost control, but certainly been really overwhelmed and moved by the kind of things these writers have gone through and the way they've written about them. Uh, the example I remember most and will never forget is Ed Hirsch. Uh, when we had him on the series, he was just about to publish uh, that long, great poem about the loss of his son. It hadn't appeared yet, but I'd gotten a galley of it, and I'd read it and was devastated by it. And I asked him just as week before we went on, you know, would you mind talking about this? And he was visibly surprised that I had a copy of it uh, and said, I, I can't read that. I can't read from that work yet mm -hmm. in public, but we can talk about it. And so uh, we did. Uh, toward the end of that interview, I asked him questions about his son and the challenges of memorializing someone that you love, that you lost far too early, that you never should have lost at all, uh, and how you do that in a way that is respectful to him and to the art. And I thought his answers were incredibly moving and profound. Let's listen to a part of this Life of a Poet conversation with Ed Hirsch. It took place at the Hill Center in April 2014, right before Hirsch's book, Gabriel, had officially been released. And just a note, Hirsch references a poem in here called Blunt Morning, which he reads just a few minutes earlier in the conversation. It's an elegiac poem he wrote upon the death of his mother-in-law, Gertrude. You've written a book called Gabriel that, to borrow a phrase from one of your earlier poems, reads like a white, grief-stricken wail. I haven't really talked about this. I, was, I, I told you before that I was surprised you had read it, yet I, I didn't know the proofs were, were out. I'm not, not really sure how to, how to talk about it, except to say that um, it's, it's important to try and memorialize people. And there's something really awful about writing an elegy for someone who's younger than you, part of the Part of the nature of the, the, the fact of blunt mourning, for example, is it's really awful, but you do expect your parents to die in front of you. And um, it is part of your job to see them through. And uh, that's what I felt I was doing with Janet's, what Janet and I were doing. In, and then what I tried to do in my poem was in, in try and dramatize the last moments of Gertrude's life. But there's something really unnatural about losing a child, and there's something unnatural about having to write an elegy for your child, but 
um, I felt that I, I wanted people to know what he was like. And the book takes us through his whole life, from the adoption, through his childhood, through his adolescence, till he dies at 22 in 2011. I'm, I become one of the, fe it's not the only feature of the book, but one of the features of the book is I become Gabriel's biographer. And I, I tell his story in poems, um, but I do tell his story and I tried really hard to capture his personality, his outlandishness and his impulsiveness, his impulsivity. I tried to create a form to creators to capture his impulsivity, his wildness really. And uh, so that, people would have a feeling for what he what he was what he was like it's an absolutely devastating book at one point you say i'm scared of rounding him up of turning him into a story that's so i can imagine why you would write such a thing why why publish this intensely private tragedy i'm not sure the answer to that actually um I don't know the I don't know exactly the answer to that. Um, Many parents will find comfort in this who've gone through this experience. Well, that would be a consolation, and that would be one answer. But you can't claim that for yourself. Um, I'm not. I'm certainly not the only one. Um, other people, in fact, everyone is initiated at some point into the in, into a kind of grief that is pretty is unbearable to them. I don't. I don't think anyone escapes this. It may not be your child, but you. I have a poem about this in the book about everyone's carrying an invisible bag of cement on their shoulders. And um, that's why it takes courage to get up in the morning and step out into the day because everyone is carrying an invisible bag of cement. And it's, if you don't, if they seem like they don't, it's only because they're either too young or you don't know them because no one escapes unscathed with this. If you love people, the price of loving them is losing them. And one of the things that poetry can do is to try and give you something of them back. And if not them, at least can memorialize how you felt about them. It may not give them, you may not have them back because you don't, but you can at least say what you felt. And one of the things that poetry does is leave a record of what it felt for us to be here. And I just, I guess I wanted to leave something behind of uh, what I felt about this and capture something of his, of, of what, what he was like. The whole conversation with Ed Hirsch is so wide-ranging and funny and tender, but this moment in particular really shows the depths to which the life of a poet can go, and the trust that emerges and takes root throughout. Okay, back to Ron and Rob. Right, no, I, I, I've never, I, I'm never not surprised by what happens at some point uh, over the course of one of these events. I think of uh, your interview with Alice Fulton in the penultimate poem you asked her to read, which was this big, long poem, this big, long, sort of emotionally powerful poem, and then you ended with a sort of lighthearted poem, uh, which is actually what you did with Ray Armitrout very recently, too, and, which leads me to the question of how you decide in the, in the course of the interview to insert which poem, and how do you decide which poem you want to uh, conclude with? I prepare too much. I have uh, enough material for about two and a half, three hours. Yeah. Uh, and as we talk, I'm, I scratch pages off and sections out when I sense that things aren't working or we don't want to go in that direction. Or very often poets 
over-anticipate my questions, and so further questions don't work anymore. Right. So I'm editing as I go, but I also have a page at the, at the end where I say, end with this poem. So no matter okay. where we go or what we're doing, I know we're going to end on that poem because I don't want the hour to end on something particularly dreary or right. tragic. Right. Uh, not that it's Pollyanna. Many of these poems, most of these poets, you know, don't write anything like that. But I do want it to end on something uplifting or witty or something a little lighter to get us out the door right. than perhaps we've talked about during the hour. Often some, we need that. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Some of these discussions have been, you know, you just feel devastated. And so uh, it's nice to end on something that maybe a little different tone. Mm-hmm. Because they're going to go off and talk to the poet then, and have books signed. And, right. You know that should be that should be more of a, of a of something we can embrace. Back in November 2015, Alice Fulton joined Ron Charles for a Life of a Poet conversation that, as Robin Ron just mentioned, stands out in part because of its pretty weighty tonal shift towards the end. After discussing Alice Fulton's relationship to religion and faith, and how those themes play out in her poems. The conversation shifts toward elegy, and she's asked to read Doha Meltdown Elegy, a long poem written after her mother's death in 2009. Let's listen to the last few minutes of this Life of a Poet conversation with Alice Fulton from the closing section of Doha Meltdown Elegy. Remembering is disheveling. God, why do you need us to die? I asked quoting the floatery spasms of the prayer flags, breeding novenas, exhorting the after here. As prayer flags give their prayers to wind, let my constancy compound. As fire metastasizes, sew me into my dark, and if a spark falls on my collar, cover it with a needlework of charnel flowers. It doesn't matter where I am. It doesn't matter when I am. It doesn't matter how fast I am going or how I am oriented. I will think of her always and never defer my mourning. I will sieve the ether for her. She is so nearly here. Incredible process you take us through. Uh, about grief, of course, but it's also, it moves us beyond that uh, in, in a way that Pimamorium does in you know, vastly more lines. Uh, incredibly powerful poem. Mm, well, thank you. I have to say truthfully, I didn't know if it was any good at all. Uh, when I finished it, I, I thought, that ending, I'm, I'm really not sure about that last line. That's how it is when you write poetry, a lot of people probably write it. You know that feeling, you get to the end, it's the hard part. Um, it's the part everyone waits for, I think, when you read poems. You hope at the end you're going to be given something. And I didn't know that I had, I had written something good, but it was all I could do. And then I tried to revise it and fix it up and make it a little better, and I could change a word here and a word there. But in the end, I had to go with that kind of flat ending. It was just what it was, what Did it, it was. Help? Did writing the poem help? No. <laughs> Sorry. I know. It would be great if... Poetry really did console us in that way. But um, so there are certain things that you go through, of course, that, you, that art does not console you for, I think. Art has its limitations. 
<laughs> poetry has its limitations. And I, I can't say it consoled me. I didn't even know if it was good. So <laughs> maybe if I knew that, I would have felt, well, okay, I, was worth, I, I did something. I made a piece of art. But um, no, there was no consolation. Those I, aren't I'm questions. Those aren't questions we're going to work out, right? Why, why did he make us to die? And that's not a question we're going to answer. Right. Uh, right. There's no answer to some of this stuff. And sometimes you just have to live with the fact that you're not ever going to be consoled, I think. It's something that you, you've been changed, and things will be different, and you'll go on, and there'll be happy moments, of course, but, but being consoled or getting over something just sometimes doesn't ever happen. In one of your poems, you say mockingly, most people want blurbish blobs of praise. <laughs> But I can't help myself. <laughs> uh, uh, I, uh, I have lots of blurbish blobs of praise for you. Uh, will you finish by reading a poem called Sequel? Oh, that's a nice happy poem. <laughs> that's what I thought. That's what I was hoping for. The universe's ignorance of me is privacy. I know the endangered meadow in a way it will never know itself. Must be the cosmos wanted something to hear the splendor note and find the fossil data, to take an interest in extinction events and ask, what pulsation is this exerted from? What what? I don't know about purpose, the why of why we're here, but we seem to witness with a difference. To think is to exercise God heat. Haven't I been given everything, my life? I might as well revise the opening to read The Universe Adores Me. It leans. It likes. It feels no one could fail in quite the same way as I've. It gives burnish when what is worthy of it. The cosmos must have wanted something to provide ovation and disdain and inquire under whose auspices comes applause and hiss, and ask whose modulations unscroll in flowers so immoderate that many fewer would be nonetheless a form of excess. It's such an honor to talk to you tonight. I'm so glad you came. The turn from grief and elegy toward levity is so sudden here, but it really gives everyone, including the poet, a chance to catch their breath. This conversation is also just a gorgeous example of the range of a Life of a Poet event, really pushing the element of surprise all the way through. Before we wrap up today's episode, let's hear some final words from Ron Charles and Rob Casper. Given your experience, as you said, when you started, you wanted to um, learn about poetry experience poetry in a new way uh, through this series. Given the experience of talking to these uh, 17 poets over the course of four years, what might you say you understand about poetry's place in our culture and the work that these poets are doing? I've learned the kind of poetry I like. I like a kind of uh, thematically complex lyric poetry. Not all of these poets write that. But I've learned to like, you know, to appreciate all of them and to like all of them, honestly. But I've also developed my own preferences, which is nice. I would not have been able to say that four years ago. What kind of poetry you like? I don't know. I like Emily Dickinson. I like, you know, whatever I studied in school. But now I really could say. Uh, all these poets 
address issues that we're going through as a country in ways that no other form of literature does. Some of them do it in very direct ways. People like Brian Turner, you know, uh, can write about war uh, and his experience uh, in the Iraq War in a very, you know, direct and I would say, uh, in a way that everyone, you know, can see immediately. But they're all responding to the culture. Uh, and I think, you know, if you're just experiencing America through journalism, television, pop music, maybe a few novels a year, if you're not also reading a couple of collections of modern poetry every year, you're really missing part of who we are. And I would encourage people not to be intimidated, even by the first few poems. Mm -hmm. Just keep reading. Don't worry about whether you understand it. Just keep reading until you feel something. I can't think of a better place to stop than there. <laughs> Thanks, Ron. Oh, thank you, Rob. It's uh, been great to host this series. Thank you for joining us on From the Catbird Seat. To learn more about poetry past, present, and future at the Library of Congress, visit us at loc.gov poetry. You can watch or listen to the full events featured on today's episode by going to loc.gov discover and clicking on video webcasts. We'll be back next week for another episode. Stay tuned. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.